You've got things to do, places to go, goals to reach. If you're living with a disability, you may need some extra support to live your best life. If you qualify for NDIS funding, let HealthAbility take care of the rest. HealthAbility's trustworthy, professional and dedicated support coordination team can help keep life simple. With HealthAbility by your side, you'll have an experienced, accredited support coordinator advocating for you and connecting you with the support you need. HealthAbility.org.au At Foxtel, entertainment is a very big deal, including live sport in 4K Ultra HD, plus drama, movies and Netflix. Foxtel's very big deal on sale now. Search Foxtel today or call 131787. New customers only. Offer ends June 30. Millions of despairing men, women and little children Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom, and this week we have uh, new friends of ours. Uh, we have. Derek Smith and Laurel Hosted Smith. I'm sorry, Jones. I want to say Smith because I think there's a professional athletes with that last name. Um, but it is, it is in fact Jones. I apologize. And they are from the podcast Midnight Myth. They also have a couple of spin-off podcasts. They'll talk about that. But today we're going to talk about Greek mythology. But let's first welcome them into the show. So Laurel and Derek, thank you for coming on in. Thank you so much for having us, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, super happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, Want to tell the folks a little bit about yourselves and your your shows? Sure. So The Midnight Myth, we have been doing as a project between the two of us over the last five years. We are married. We're a married couple, and we have now a young son. But this project has spanned the course of our relationship. We 
started it when we were just boyfriend and girlfriend, just naive young whippersnappers, I guess. But The Midnight Myth is a podcast project that we do where we explore pop culture through the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy. So every episode we take a piece of significant pop culture, like a movie, a television show, sometimes even a book or a Broadway musical, and we analyze it through the lens of those more academic subjects. We're really in the search of universal themes, universal truths that we find unfolding through the stories that we tell. That sounds fantastic. So yeah, folks, definitely check out that show, and then at the end we'll uh, get a chance to remind everyone about the your main show and then your spin-off shows and all that. Um, so we're going to talk about Greek mythology, and Greek mythology, I've been thinking about this a little bit during the week. Um, obviously, Garden of Doom, we do a lot of mythology, and, and probably I would say the themes that we explore are similar to yours, though. I think yours is in a very different and focused manner where mine is sort of all over the place and very much guest led but to me greek mythology is probably the mythology that i'm most familiar with or was uh, and i think probably most people are and i was thinking about why and then i realized well i'm of that age where you sort of grew up on the harry Hauser movies and there was the jason the argonauts sure. hercules clash of the titans but, you know, all of us in school, we had to read the Greek tragedies. We, we had to read, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey at some point, And the Greek gods figure prominently in those stories. Uh, and even in comic books, Wonder Woman, daughter of Zeus. In, even in Marvel, there was Hercules. So we've been exposed to it all over the place. And then, you know, my kids, I'm older than you, you folks are, or you started much later than I did. Um, and uh, the Percy Jackson a movie sort of, revisited the, the Greek mythos on us again. So, uh, you know, I don't know where you want to start. I don't know if you want to start like with the Titanokami or before the Titanokami or introduce us to the panoply, but you are the guest, you are the expert. So please, by all means, take sure. it away. I just want to kind of highlight what you just said, that Greek mythology for many people is the mythology, the pantheon that we're most familiar with, that we know the most about. And largely that's because it's the best preserved. It is one where we have a wealth of sources where with other mythological traditions, we have quite a dearth of sources. So it's something like Norse mythology, which Derek is very interested in. Uh, and for me, a, an area that I have an adjacent interest in is Celtic mythology and Welsh mythology in particular. Those are mythological traditions where maybe our, our best sources on those are like 13th century manuscripts and medieval poetry, whereas with the Greeks, we have just a really rich density of material coming from these kind of contemporary sources. We have Hesiod, we have Virgil, we have Homer, and we have Ovid, plus you already mentioned we have the, the tragedies and the comedies of people like Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Euripides. So we really just have a really wondrous wealth of sources that makes it really exciting to dig into the richness of the mythology, but also gives us these complex tapestries of differing traditions around the same stories. So it's very exciting, it can be very complex, it can be very confusing, but that's one of the reasons that we, uh, we, we have so much and that so many people study it in school. Now, where does Tyler Perry's Medea rank in your in your order of the <laughs> number one? <laughs> you know, when I first like heard about Medea, I was I was already I got really into mythology starting when I was like eleven years old, and I had already heard about the Jason and the Golden Fleece story, and I had already been introduced to the great feminist 
hero icon that is Medea. And I was like, wait, there's movies about the awesome Greek mythology witch? No, not so much, but... <laughs> you know, one thing I, I would like to just add on top of Please. your point, if you will permit me there, the interesting thing about Greek mythology is another reason it is so preserved was because the Romans Hellenized and adopted so many of the Greek myths into the Roman tradition. The ancient Roman aristocrat, if they were to be a knowledgeable or learned aristocrat, they knew Greek, they knew all the Greek myths, they knew Homer, they knew all of the Greek plays, and they would write in Greek up until the time of Cicero, where then it changed into Latin. But because they adopted so many of the Greek myths and folded them into the Roman society, which then was the dominant imperial force in Western civilization for near a thousand years. It's another reason why it was so preserved. Um, just other fun things, why Greek mythology? Why do we all know it? Um, there's also the romantic revival of Greek tragedy, Greek poetry, Greek mythology. So at the end of the Enlightenment period, so we're talking about the, the cusp between the 1700s to the 1800s and then into the 1900s, a bunch of poets and scholars started reimagining re and going back to all of the Greek myths. They started painting about them. They started telling stories about them. And a lot of the groundwork of modern storytelling that we know came from there. And so the romantics were so involved in looking back to the classical era and they brought these Greek myths and gave them new life that I think still continues to today. That's a really good point, and that's not even to mention the, the Renaissance. So the, the revival in the 18th and 19th centuries is so important to the modern shaping of our understanding and our theories around myth, but especially we owe a lot to the Italian and French and Flemish Renaissances because they, they brought the, the classics back into the light. That's and right. I should say, anyway. Laurel comes at everything with the more mythological lens. I'm always going to ask for the historical angle. That's kind of my, my role in the podcast. But that's the cool thing about mythology, uh, and we're already on this like crazy tangent. It's very midnight myth up in here. But the cool thing about mythology is that it wraps all of these uh, really interesting, complex sociological and you know humanistic concepts into one beautiful package, right? History is part of it. Religion is part of it. Um, but so is psychology and uh, and philosophy to an extent. So there are an anthropology. So there's just so much that you can unravel with the stories that we tell. Absolutely. Well, I have to. I will do a point of correction. Here we don't call them tangents. We call them meanderings because it's oh. so, it's sort of my specialty to meander through the Garden of Doom. The other thing is, audience, this is this is an audio for you. But for me, I'm recording on on, a, on Adobe Audition, but we're also using Zoom, so I can see them. But Laurel is sort of cut off, but I can see Derek straight on, and the, the video is a little bit cut. It's like a little bit jerky, so it's almost like I'm seeing them in freeze frame. So it looks very much like Derek and Laurel might be like bickering playfully, and whenever he's, before he says something, he looks at her cautiously to make sure it's okay. And these are really, this this is really lessons in a successful marriage. Um, <laughs> just always always defer to, to your spouse. Um, at least in in a cis relationship, uh, I you know and, and uh, that's probably was uh, one of my problems. I uh, not good at that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it, so anyways, so you guys can see this. I hope that meandering was uh, that I painted enough of a picture there. But without I, you know, I don't know which one of you wants to start, but you can start wherever you want and. Just take us through, you know, like your Greek mythology 101, and we'll hopefully we'll land somewhere around 201, maybe even 301, depending on how good we, how well we do. I love it. So should we start with the creation myth? 
Let's do it. What's better than creation? Absolutely. In the beginning, there was nothing. There was chaos. Uh, Greek mythology, again, like we said, there are so many sources, so there are so many versions of all of these tales, but largely uh, they will all start with chaos. There is a void. Uh, and then from chaos, darkness is born in the form of Nyx. Uh, also, through the mating of chaos and Nyx, chaos and darkness, comes Erebus, who is the master of the underworld. And then through more incestuous mating, we get Aether, we get Himera, and they become the parents of Gaia. Gaia is the personification of the Earth, often these days called Mother Earth. Uh-huh. Um, Gaia's siblings are Tartarus, Hell, uh, Pontus, Sea, and Eros, Love. Now from here, Gaia is the one who gives birth to Uranus, who is the sky, Uranus, uh, and mates with Uranus, Uranus, to bring forth the Titans. So here's where the Titans are born, these primordial gods, these deities who walk the earth before we meet the Olympians, who we're all very familiar with. Yeah, so so, uh, the Titans, they're like second-gen gods. Yeah, yeah. So we get the primeval deities in chaos and and so forth, but then we we get this generation of Titans who will be Titanic, to say the least. (laughs) Indeed. So introduce us to the Titans, because, you know, I think most people know Zeus, Apollo, Athena, but, you know, I'm not sure that everyone knows that there were not just uh, one generation above them, but at least two, and before that, the, the nothing, which is... Not all that different than a lot of other mythologies. Right. (laughs) So there are 12 titans in most traditions, uh, and among the most well-known of them are like Mnemosyne, who is the personification of memory, Oceanus, um, and then Rhea and Cronus, who will become the parents of the Olympians, very significantly the parents of Zeus. Um, Uranus, who is that... uh, the, the sky who is the lover of Gaia and who is the, the father of the Titans is a tyrant and is not very cool to his kids and Gaia is not excited about that. So between her and the Titans, she wants to rebel against Uranus. So, so, to... <laughs> so, so he's like he's like he's like the evil stepfather, but he's a real yeah. father. Yeah, absolutely. And this rebellion eventually becomes uh, successful as she teams up with Cronus uh, to castrate Uranus, and Cronus ends up throwing uh, his father's genitals into the sea, and in most traditions, particularly in Hesiod, this is the foundation of the birth of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. So his genitals get cast into the sea, become sea foam, and then beautiful Aphrodite is born from that which I love. Greek mythology, all mythologies are full of fun little sexual details. Sure, isn't Aphrodite, is, she sort of sort of stands alone, but she sort of joins the next 12 also. It's, uh, she's, she's an interesting character in and of herself. Absolutely. There is just a, a, a great wealth of Aphrodite fun. She's a major figure in the start of the Trojan War and uh, is connected with a lot of the Olympians in many ways, particularly in sexual and romantic ways. Well, there you go. All right. Yeah, the, the Olympians, they're very frisky. They're very yeah, and, emotional. And she's a, she's a babe. Particularly Zeus <laughs> is frisky, but we'll, we'll certainly get to him. So after this rebellion, after the overthrow of Uranus, 
we now have this victorious Cronus who marries his sister Rhea, and they give birth to a crop of gods, the Olympians. But Cronus takes on a little bit of the same qualities of his tyrannical father. So he starts to get paranoid that he's going to be overthrown by his kids. One of them is going to grow up and be too strong and dethrone him. So every time Rhea gives birth to a child, he eats them. Hmm. And he just eats and eats and eats and eats these babies. Rhea gets fed up with this. She's like, no more. And when she is about to give birth to Zeus, she decides she's going to trick her husband and she takes a rock and wraps it up in baby clothes and blankets and feeds it to Cronus, who eats it and is like, oh yeah, that's fine. Meanwhile, she hides Zeus away in Crete, where he grows up, becomes very strong, and eventually comes back and avenges his siblings, overthrows his father, and forces him to vomit up all of the children that he had swallowed, who all come out fully formed as, you know, Hera and Poseidon and Hades and Demeter and all of these wonderful, powerful Olympian gods who are the ones who will become the major actors in a lot of the myths going forward. So there's a couple of lessons here. One, chew your food, especially, yeah. especially if you're planning to commit infanticide um, by eating. Uh, <laughs> secondly, um, if you are a victim of patricide, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to uh, be victim. That you will be, you know, repeat those things again. So don't kill your father because your your son may kill you, as well. Uh, it's 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 almost like there was something like to oracles or prophecies in in Greek stories. And perhaps this idea of patricide, perhaps this idea of the young son overthrowing the father will recur somewhere in myths or maybe somewhere in popular culture. I wonder we if can't it, say. Yeah, do you think it's like a, a like a, a cycle, the cycle repeats itself kind of metaphor? Or it's just, uh, this is what they decided to, to settle on when the myth was created, that uh, dads are terrible and, and they kill their kids and it just keeps on going and going. Derek, what do you think? Well, I think there's a few layers to that one there's no definitive version of a myth so i think we're we're drawing you're drawing primarily from the hisogeny from from hesiod Hesiod, right so hesiod wrote these stories and they become sort of the definitive version it's important to know that myth is so different from modern thought where that there's no set textual this is what happened this is the myth people are allowed to think and feel and add to the mythic story any way they choose so there's that part two I think this is my wheelhouse kind of question, because if you approach from the historical angle, you ask yourselves, what, why did people tell these myths and what did they mean when they told them? And most of the myths that we're getting came from a part of Greek history called the Archaic Age. So there are certain ages of Greek history. The Archaic, that's when Homer lived. That's a little bit before we think of Athens and Sparta and philosophy, but that's when these stories started being written down. That's when the Greek language really started becoming one of the, the written word. That's when literature started forming. And if we ask ourselves, why were the archaic Greeks telling these stories to each other about the creation of their universe? There's a few trends. One, the universe is hostile and threatening. And I think they're understanding the universe as hostile. If the personified concepts like sky and time can devour their young. They're really thinking about how everyone can be devoured and will be devoured. Two, they're setting up a patriarchal system. 
a system with a father at the top and that father that father rules everything and that father's power is absolute and the only thing that challenges that that father's power is the rising of a new son and then three they're kind of working through generational trauma the idea that humans are one of the few species that know or maybe the only species that know we're going to die so all of these myths are about immortal beings killing each other so that they can stay supreme immortal beings among all other immortal beings so i think these anxieties um probably existed in these cultures archaic greece is coming out of what's called the bronze age collapse so it's coming out of a dark age of the ancient world so the ancient world is not a very prosperous and happy place and here come these brutal stories of you know these personified forces devouring children and i think it speaks to the, the psychology of the times this is before they have things such as um you know we know greeks they invited they invented constitutional city states they invited invented part of me democracies this is before any of that really started to happen and this is laying the seeds of a culture that would then become our own culture down the line i think that's really well said and it's a, a fascinating exercise and it's it's always really it, it's always really interesting to look at the myths and try to um, interpolate or extrapolate the context of the people who were telling those myths originally because i think so much our consciousness of these myths is shaped by 19th and 20th century interpretations of myth, which I think are deeply important, like by Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, who are people who are very important to us in our interpretations of myth. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I appreciate the context of the historical framework that you're bringing to it, because I think a lot of us want to say, Oh yeah, they did the stories of fathers, uh, you know, being afraid of sons overthrowing them and sons overthrowing fathers because there's a Freudian impulse and this psychoanalytical lens on it. But yeah, so anyway, I'm grateful that you brought that in. And just one last quick point: even though most of these stories start from the archaic era in the literary tradition, there's evidence to suggest that they're way older than that that they date back to the Mycenaean age, which is almost like a thousand years before then. So these stories were being told word of mouth for a really, really, really long time. And I think that shows us that the, the world's pretty, even then, the world was a hostile place. It's not an easy place to grow up. The old may devour the young, and the young may seek to devour the old. And I think those dynamics are still somewhat at play today. Yeah, um, a lot. Well, humans are still humans. The human condition is still largely the same. But yeah, the, because the Greek um, mythos, you know, borrows a bit from the Egyptian, which seems to borrow from the Canaanite, and there seems to be some crossover in, into Western Africa. And then, well, who knows who borrowed from who? I mean, who who knows who started? It's it's hard when nothing's written. But uh, uh, our friend uh, Aphrodite. There seems to be a, a mirror goddess, you know, all around that region of her, whether it's um, Ishtar or Iyana or Astarte, Isis, uh, and some of these also have qualities of Athena, as I, as I understand it. Uh, I always forget the, the Western African name, but we covered her on a, on a prior show. I think, I think it's Iyana, something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe it's what I said. Um, anyway, we're going to... Yeah, unless you want to touch on that, we can we can I guess start with the start with Zeus, but if, but you can certainly touch on that if you have anything to add to that. If we want to talk about Baal and friends or uh, you know uh, mighty Astarte, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar. I have some familiarity with the Ishtar connections, but I'll have to go back and listen to that episode on West Africa because I do find that um, a, a really interesting uh, sort of folklore area. Well, terrific. I, I, I have someone who's going to talk to us about uh, Canaanite mythology uh, as, as well. We, had, we did a show on, on Egyptian mythology with Mogmorg, and we did a show on Norse mythology with the great Chris Ams, who was my only five-time guest. Um, but uh, we'll see. But yeah, all right. So we don't need to go through the comparative mythologies of what was before or after. Uh, the audience can play along, and you know, well, this journey may take us years to get to that. But yeah, so okay, so they, the the god is all powerful in Kronos, uh, except he doesn't chew his food, and he can be fooled by a rock and clothing. So it seems a little bit like a cartoon wolf, but you know, the, the details, shmeetails, and and. You know, obviously the the goddess was you know maybe uh, put a spell on him or something, um, and we can cartoonize anything we like. Well, and the, you know, uh, the the myths. I'm not sure if they were meant to be literal or not, but you folks can probably opine on that. But yeah, we can take it. You can certainly touch on those things, and then I guess we can start with Zeus and friends, because as I understand it, there were twelve titans, and and then there were also sort of twelve major gods in in the. Greek pantheon, that number 12, I mean, obviously repeats in lots and lots of places, and uh, Greek mythology, I believe, is no different. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Are there 12 Olympians? Is that right? Correct, yeah. Oh, my Olympians. goodness. Yeah. I, should, I should have known that. Um, I feel like I just think of it as so expansive. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's like 30,000 of them, but <laughs> that's, that's very... Foxtel's very big deal on sale now. For $59 a month on a 12-month plan, get live sport in 4K Ultra HD, plus the latest in drama and entertainment. Yeah, I'm happy for you. Search Foxtel today or call 131787. Min cost $708, new customers only, offer in June 30. Very interesting. Well, there's a lot of lesser uh, gods, a lot of demigods and things like that, but yeah, apparently there's the 12 and that sort of repeats itself, but, you know, we have 12 months... You know, uh, we've got twelve constellations, the twelve apostles. There's a, uh, uh, you know, a whole twelve repeats itself quite a bit. Certainly. Um, so yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to start with Zeus. Uh, Zeus being the most powerful, the almighty, the prime uh, deity of the Olympians, and also mostly the worst. Uh, <laughs> just, just the worst. Um, He's married to Hera, who is, of course, his sister, because the Olympians were the sons and daughters of Cronus and Rhea. Uh, and Zeus shows up in, in just countless stories. So there are so many directions that we could take this in. I think it might be interesting, Derek, if, if you're interested in talking about it, one myth that has gained some incredible new life in uh contemporary popular culture especially is the myth of Hades and Persephone where Zeus does figure um, but largely as a um, an ancillary character is that something you'd be interested in talking about I'm down with that are you down with that Jeff sure you guys you guys yeah. lead oh you want me to start talking to is that okay oh sure or would you like me to do it yeah I oh, absolutely I totally misunderstood so yeah there is the story of Persephone so Persephone's original name is Cory. Uh, lesser known deity. She is a daughter of Demeter. Demeter is associated with grain and with the harvest. And Hades pops up and sees Cory and is just like, hey, you are a very attractive young goddess. I think you should come down to the underworld and marry me. And he doesn't really ask for her permission and just takes her down there. 
this obviously is not okay with Corey. Now she is in the underworld, and in the underworld she finds herself ravishly hungry and starving. But she knows that if you are in the underworld and you do eat anything, you are going to be trapped there. Once you have food in the underworld, you could never leave at the underworld. But she's really, really hungry. Meanwhile, back on Olympus and on Earth, Demeter is so sad that uh, Corey has been kidnapped that she stops all grain from growing. She just ends all of the vegetation. So you want to grow something? Sorry, you can't. This is causing a lot of consternation among the mortals who are complaining to Zeus saying, hey, we don't have any food anymore. So Zeus decides on Demeter's behalf, he's going to intervene, he's going to go down to the underworld, he's going to talk to his brother Hades and say, hey, you got to let Cory go back to Demeter. All these mortals are way too ticked off. They need food and they're giving me all of these angry prayers. Meanwhile, Cory is in the underworld and Hades tricks Cory by saying, listen, I know you can't eat anything, just eat these six pomegranate seeds. And if you eat these six pomegranate seeds, we'll just hold things over until we figure out this whole, I kind of kidnapped you and named you my wife thing. So she eats the six pomegranate seeds. Zeus comes down and says, listen, Hades, I got to take her back. It's just really messed up up there. And Hades goes, ah, 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 but she ate six seeds. Now that she has eaten in the underworld, she is never allowed to leave. Zeus, being a shrewd arbiter, decides, well, they're just pomegranate seeds. Since you have had six pomegranate seeds for six months of the year, Cory, you must live in the underworld. And then for the other six months, you're allowed to return to Demeter. This compromise works, and in these six months where Cory, who now renames herself Persephone, as she's now going to be stuck in the underworld, so when she's there, Demeter stops the grain from growing out of sadness, and then when she returns, Demeter will allow the grain to grow. And hence we have a myth that's about partly explaining why the seasons happen is one major interpretation of it. Um, if we want to think about Zeus and Zeus's role in this, if that is the, the central figure, this shows Zeus, which you say is the worst, and he is. I mean, he stinks, especially when it comes to respecting female autonomy. Women, yeah. <laughs> and, and especially with rape and incest and all of these terrible things that he does. Yeah. But this shows Zeus in a role of an arbiter of justice. Any Greek king, any Greek leader is expected when people have disagreements to go to them and figure out the most just and fair way to balance it. So Zeus's role in this myth is the one of arbiter. Hey, the people are upset. I've got a brother who, who deserves a wife. In an ancient Greek tradition, he's allowed as an Olympian to claim his wife. I've got a, is Demeter his sister? Sister, but, sh so he's also Persephone's father. He's also Persephone's father. Yeah. So I've got a sister who won't allow the grain to grow, and I have mortals that are unhappy. I've got to figure out a way to balance all of these things out so everybody walks away. No one gets everything they want, but everyone gets a little bit of what he wants. From the perspective of the ancient Greeks, I think it's very much about trying to understand the change of the seasons. There's also another interpretation of it. Some linguists have gone in and have looked at what months Persephone was supposed to be trapped in the underworld and have found that those were the summer and fall months originally told. So that the myth when it was originally told, if that's the case, well, in ancient Greece and Greece today, summer and fall is when things grow. So why would it be that those were the original months in the first writings of this story and the suggestion is 
that this myth is also about females coming to terms with marriage in an ancient Greek patriarchal world, that they don't actually have a choice, that they don't have a say, that marriage to a, a young Greek female is in part a form of death and rebirth itself. The girl must die so that the wife must be reborn, and it's ultimately going to be up to the men to determine who she marries and who she doesn't, and the person that also gets hurt in this is the mother who gets to see their daughter, now a woman, left. There's a lot of, like, people dive into the pomegranates and the pomegranate seeds as a, met a metaphor since it's red of menstruation right? Um, and female periods, so people get into it like that, but it's one of the most undoubtedly fascinating, interesting coolness. Yeah, I agree, and thank you for, for telling that. You you tell it very well, and I appreciate it. Uh, it is interesting for those uh, those myriad interpretations of it, and I think it's a really illustrative example to bring in as one of the first things that we talk about because it shows, A, just how, uh, just how differing our interpretations of a myth can be, uh, but it's also a, a really interesting uh, piece of the puzzle when we look at how Greek myths reinforce patriarchy, how they navigate gender, and how in explaining the realities of the phenomenal world, they're also explaining the realities of the human condition. So, I love it. That is great. Okay, uh, if there was a little bit of a break, that's because my Zoom crapped out, but luckily our heroes uh, have their own Zoom and they call me back. So we had finished up with the story of Persephone and some of the uh, modern takes on it, which may be the original takes as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to move off of Persephone and was it the seasons, was it... I, I, I'm going to be thinking about why the seasons seem to be wrong uh, while you guys are talking a little bit, I'll try and do two things at once, which isn't always my strength. But, yeah, so... I guess we can go back to Zeus, who, yes, is often horrible. Uh, we also are going to touch on why women uh, seem to submit to goats and swans uh, in Greek <laughs> mythology. Uh, you know, 16-year-old uh, me, it didn't even work as a, as a boy, let alone, okay, 30-year-old me either. Um, but uh, certainly I would think a goose or a goat would have a, a harder time of uh, finding women uh, voluntarily. Um, uh, preferably, you know. Um, so let's start with let's start with our friend, but not our hero, Zeus. Yeah, but have you ever been at a pond and you're just like it's a beautiful day and the sun is out and the birds are singing and then there's just a really nice looking swan just like cutting a path through the water and you're just like, yeah, okay, let's do this, swan. <laughs> no, just me. Um, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Is Barry White playing? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Whatever floats your boat, whatever floats the swan. Um, yeah, no, Zeus, uh, yeah, continues to be the worst. Largely why we're saying that is because Zeus married to Hera, this goddess of fertility, childbirth, domesticity, uh, a really powerful figure in her own right, and he's constantly off having little trysts of his own, which generally are manipulative and are outright rape. So frequently he will transform himself into other animals or objects or golden rays of light in order to uh, seduce and impregnate women whether they know it or not and then when Hera finds out that he is off having an affair then she 
disproportionately punishes the other woman. So there are uh, characters, there there are women who have been turned into cows. I think it's Io who's turned into a cow yeah. who is, uh, cons- she's perpetually doomed to run the earth with a fly biting her rump. Uh, just following her as she runs uh, from Miss Fly. And that's her entire destiny because she slept with Hera's husband, even though it was largely against her will and without her knowing. So that is a theme that just continues throughout Greek mythology, that Zeus is unable to keep it in his pants and is usually ruining women's lives uh, without their consent. Uh, Laurel, isn't Io the mother of Perseus? No, Danae is the mother of Perseus, but I did mention uh, that that affair already. That's when um, her uh, her grandfather seals her up in a tower because she's prophesied to give birth to a son who will rise up and overthrow his uh, his the, the older generation. And then Zeus comes into the tower as a shower of light, and through that shower of light, impregnates Danae, and then that's how she gives birth to Perseus. So once again, we're back on this thread of the younger generation, the prophecies, the killing of the father, or the killing of the grandfather, uh, and this revolving cycle of life, death, rebirth, the new generation rising up to destroy the older. So Zeus and his friends, they lived on Mount Olympus, which is a well, now there's a mountain called Mount Olympus, maybe then too, but uh, obviously our Mount Olympus in this is, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, Wakanda where you pass a, a barrier and, and only certain gods or entities can, can pass there unless they give permission. There's like a Bifrost or something. Um, <laughs> and I guess Zeus is the king of the gods and I guess his power is like lord of the, the sky and lightning and stuff like that. I mean, is, is that about right? Yeah, he's got thunderbolts. Thunderbolts yeah. and lightning are very, very frightening. Very, very frightening. Yeah, and it's worth noting that in the Greek religious sense, the gods are not transcendental. So in well, the way people believe in religion now is that God exists in heaven, and then God transcends if he needs to act, or he sends angels or the Holy Ghost or whatever your beliefs are. In the ancient Greek world, the gods live on Earth. Olympus is a real place that you can go to. They're part of Earth, and they're constantly meddling in our affairs. And you have Zeus as the king. He divides up between himself and his two brothers. They kind of like draw straws on who has what domain. So Zeus gets the sky. His brother Poseidon gets the sea. And then Hades gets the short straw. And he's in the underworld and is the god of the underworld. Yeah. But their underworld is not like hell. Hell is, uh, well, Tartarus is like the bad place. For Hell is just literally, he's the ruler of all of the dead, right? Right, yeah, there are distinct regions, so Tartarus, Tartarus is hell, and usually the um, the punishments that you get in Tartarus are tailored to the crime. Uh, so we think of Tantalus, who is doomed to have uh, water just out of reach for a drink and fruit just out of reach on a tree. Sisyphus, who is bound to push a boulder up a hill and then watch it roll fruitlessly down to the bottom of the hill. Uh, these customized punishments for these these bad, bad men. Uh, but then there's also the Elysian Fields. Uh, you know, there's also a, a paradise that might await you. Uh, this is all after you cross the river Styx, you pay the ferryman, Charon, uh, and there are 
lots of fun denizens of the underworld like Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and then Hades and his queen Persephone, of course. It's worth noting, too, a lot of Greek myths talk about the underworld, even if you don't make it to Tartarus, it's like, you don't want to be there. One of like the most central themes, especially once heroes start getting into the Greek myths, once humans start getting into there, is that the underworld is the worst place ever. Don't get there. Do everything in your power to stay alive. Even the myth of Persephone, even though she's an immortal goddess, is just like, you expect me to live here? No, no, no. This underworld place is a bad place. So generally speaking, the idea of a Greek afterlife in the Greek uh, pagan tradition doesn't seem to be a pleasant one for most folks. Is Persephone, though, the one where half uh, half of her body is of a beautiful young woman and the other half is sort of like a zombified? Ooh. No. I don't know if I know that. Yeah. I might be th- that might be that might be hell from Norse. I H E L. I I get my uh, uh, unfortunate. Yeah, go ahead. It's definitely hell from Norse myths. That's yeah. cool though. That's very daughter metal. of Loki. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the t- Tartarus sounds a little bit like Dante's Inferno, right? Where you've got the different levels of hell, and then there, you know, obviously in Dante's Dante's specific sins, you know, led to specific punishments in the levels. It, Tartarus seems like it's more uh, custom made. Uh, but it's similar. Yeah, and you know who Dante's guide was through uh, the levels of hell was Virgil. Virgil, right, yeah, sure. Yeah, the writer of the Aeneid. Mm-hmm, yeah. Classical, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a fun that's one, too, the Aeneid. That, that, uh, and uh, it leads into so much. You've got your uh, the wolves and Rome and Brutus right. and, and then maybe uh, starting Britain. And maybe that's you know, a whole yeah, bunch of Brutus stuff. Yeah, Brutus of Troy, yeah. Yeah. Another one where going to the underworld, Aeneas goes to the underworld, where it's like, no, the, the land of the living is where it's at. You do not want to go to the underworld. Yeah, Odysseus goes to the underworld. Yeah. It's like, no, nah, you don't want to be here, bro. Well, Hercules, too, or Heracles, I guess, is the yeah. Greek version of, of it. I, don't, I mean, aren't the Gorgons in Tartarus as well, or or is it just the Titans that are, like the the like the Greek gods, they didn't quite kill their parents, they sent, they sent them to Tartarus? Yeah, so in the war with the Titans, most get banished down to, ty- to, to Tartarus, pardon me. Right. There's a few other clever punishments. You know, Atlas has to hold up the sky. Um, so that happens. Prometheus, who gives fire to the humans as a Titan, gets his liver removed on a daily basis by an eagle. And then it magically regenerates, and then the eagle comes back and eats it again. It's because, brutal. Yeah, yeah, because he had the audacity to give the humans fire. That ticked off Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> So there's there's some clever ones out there, but oh, yeah, yeah. There, there's a bunch of titans get bound to the tar- to Tartarus. Why does he seem so mad about the fire thing? I mean, it seems like the gods are very into humans having these temples and doing ornate ceremonies, which you know may have involved in necessity nighttime and night vision and, and things like that. But they're mad about the fire thing. That is a really interesting irony because so many of the gods are associated with being benefactors and patrons of. Uh, of a certain people, if not all people, you think of Athena bringing the olive to Athens and being responsible for olive oil and like creating a full economy and just being this rich benefactor of these people. She's not punished for that. She's celebrated for that. Prometheus, however, is punished for bringing divine fire. I guess there's something about the stealing of this thing that is divine in nature and giving this spark to mankind. Uh, Prometheus is a, is a wonderful figure and I, I one of the things that I am really passionate about is 
uh, sort of literary interpretations of him over time, particularly in the 19th century with the Romantics, where this idea of him being this liberator and this benefactor of mankind who's unjustly punished becomes a great source of poetic inspiration for writers like Shelley and Byron. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Mr. Prometheus, even though he got the short end of the stick. Well, okay. you, you don't cross Zeus, man. Zeus doesn't want the mortals yeah. to have fire. That's the king. That's <laughs> yeah. my fire. You don't, you don't cross the king. All right, this may be ridiculously trivial, but I, I just stumbled upon two things just in, the, in our conversation that I put together, and it possibly is completely wrong. But when you were saying Athena brought olive in the olive oil, and then we had Brutus, so I'm thinking, and then there's a sea hag. I mean, is, is Popeye all uh, just a, a cartoonish spin of Greek tragedies? <laughs> Yo! Uh, so that's a beautiful thing about these myths is they have staying power and they come up in the most surprising places. I think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do a midnight myth on Popeye and talk about yeah. I think this is uh, this is excellent. Where does spinach factor in? Where does sweet pea factor in? Ah, uh, well, sweet pea. I mean, it seems obvious. Sort of like you know the the prodigal, you know the 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 Jesus, the yeah. Christos. Uh, yeah, and wimpy. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. I love it. Yeah, he he just may be the you know the groveling human that that you yeah. know, sort of wants to get something for nothing now. But I'll pray to you tomorrow. He he might just be a stand-in for all of uh, humanity's lesser traits. But harmless. See, do, you, do you want to be a guest on the Midnight Myth? You've got the, you've clearly got the, <laughs> the wit for it. You've got, I, you've got the chops, Jeff. <laughs> wow, I've arrived. You know, my parents are visiting me tomorrow, so I'm going to let them know. Yeah, I, I think I totally want to be on. A, I mean, your guests on my show. I should at least be re- reciprocate the favor slash curse. But, 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 yeah, yeah. I'm definitely, I'm definitely down. I'll have to brush up on my Popeye, but. Uh, I don't know. I'm, this, I'm strangely fascinated. I hope this isn't like when I decided to rewatch Land of the Lost. And I was sure there was going to be all this deep stuff in there, and there's not. There's just these guys were stoned and like threw some lizards and pylons and you know things in there, but they were just you know just stone dudes doing that. Oh, that's disappointing. It was. Hey, which titans? Uh, well, we'll stick. We were twelve. So which titans didn't make it to Taurus? Which were killed? Well, so there were, outside of the Titans, there were also, like, some other offspring of Cronus and Gaia who were, like, or, sorry, Uranus and Gaia who were, like, Cyclopses and monsters, and those ones were just, like, we're we're just getting rid of these guys. I thought Uh, the Cyclops were Poseidon's kids. Well, the Cyclops Polyphemus is uh, is Poseidon's son, but, like, uh, yeah, Oronis and Gaia just had some like truly monstrous offspring who were not even worthy of names or being lumped in among the Titans. Um, who were just yeah, truly monstrous. Oh, Our so people. so he yeah. was so they were like the original Nephilim and and like uh, Poseidon's Cyclops was like a lesser giant. Right, right. Uh, was it the Hydra from Heracles' story? Was it? He- the Hydra descended from a Titan too, or am I completely misremembering that? That's a good question. I am not sure. Most of the well, most of the monsters that existed in the era of heroes and Greek myths, where the heroes had to cleanse the world of monsters, were holdovers from the Titan god mm, yeah. War, and were linked to the Titans in some way. Um, I don't remember specifically if that the Hydra was one, but I know a ton of them were. I think the Nemean lion was. Mm. So a lot of these beasts that existed that the heroes went out and slaughtered, a lot of them were these sort of Titan descendant or Titan-esque 
uh, monsters. Right, right. So were these actually uh, offspring of the Titans? Like, who, who created these things? And, and where do the Gorgons fit in? I mean, I know Medusa is a Gorgon. Yeah, Medusa and her sisters. This is a, a space where, where you're a little bit more familiar I, than I am. Are you I, sure? I because I, I totally draw it a blank. Oh, that's <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Um, Medusa and the Gorgon. I know that they involve in the story of Perseus, but yeah. Yeah, I don't remember their origin off the top of my head. I'd have to look it up. Oh, boy. All right, well, let, let's... Put ourselves on blast. Well, let's circle back to the gods then, and then maybe some things will click, or, you know, or maybe Derek can use his other computer machine and, and pretend that he remembered. Uh, uh-oh. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so we, we start with Zeus, who, yes, is generally horrible, but nevertheless king of the gods and mostly unchallenged. Uh, and I guess this is a good place to go to his queen, Hera, who they seem to hate each other, but divorce is definitely not not in the equation. No, definitely not an option. Uh, the myth, I would say, uh, where Hera figures the most heavily is one that a lot of people are at least loosely familiar with through Disney adaptations or not, and that <laughs> is the, the story of Heracles, also known as Hercules. His name, Heracles, literally means glory of Hera, uh, and yet Hera is his chief tormentor throughout his life. Uh, Heracles, one of the great heroes in the, I mean, pantheon's not the right word because he's not a god, but one of the, not not yet, uh, one of the chief heroes of Greek mythology. He is the son of Zeus through a process known as heteropaternal superfecundation because Zeus got a lady who was already pregnant, double pregnant. Uh, and she gave birth to twins from two different fathers, a mortal father and a divine father, one of those being Heracles. Heracles was so powerful, so strong, that the serpents that Hera sent to kill him in his cradle, he actually strangled them and killed them as an infant. And I'm like, I look at our son, and I think he's probably strong enough. He could probably do that, too. So maybe it's not like a divine. Trait. Don't be show-offs. Your son is not Bam. <laughs> Your son is not Bam Bam. And no, I'm not going to visit Bam, the Flintstones and, and Greek uh, stories as well. Now, so first of all, I, I need you to repeat that word again. And it, it, did Her- was Theseus Hercules' full brother or half brother? Uh, so Theseus of the of, of uh, Theseus of the Minot- of the Minotaur story or. His or his like brother brother. Uh, that's a really good question. I didn't know there there were two. I think it's his brother brother who is not quite as strong as Hercules, but pretty darn strong. But also seems to be uh, less brogadacious than uh, than Hercules. Less drunk and and less breaks a lot of things while <laughs> while he's while he's trying to maybe fix things. Maybe not. You know, he he's got some of his father in him. Let's just put it that way. Yes, certainly. Um, yes. But- uh, yeah. The- I don't think Theseus is related to Hercules at no. all. No. Yeah, he's a decent... Foxtel's very big deal on sale now. For $59 a month on a 12-month plan, get live sport in 4K Ultra HD, plus the latest in drama and entertainment. Yeah, I'm happy for you. Search Foxtel today or call 131787. Min cost $708, new customers only, offering screen 30. This tax time, Officeworks has a Yoffy thing at hot prices. A Kenji 80 GSM A4 copy paper carton, only $19.95. Or a 16-pack of Expo chisel whiteboard markers, a low $17.98. Hurry in before June 30. This is the son of uh, Poseidon, and Hercules is the son of Zeus. So the cousins. So, 
Yeah. So they would be cousins then. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. So heteropaternal super super fecundation was the word. Um, You're gonna have to text me that because that is totally the name of this show. That's the title yep, of it. Yep. Yep. When you have two dads and and they make twins, um, <laughs> it's a very rare rare condition. Anyway, so Her- Heracles Hercules grows up and uh, is looking to prove his metal and. How does he get the 12 labors? How does that happen? Uh, so Heracles in a... So Heracles becomes this great hero. He's yeah. doing all these amazing feats. Everybody loves him. Hera is so upset that she casts madness on him. Right. And that Hercules kills his wife and all of his children in a rage. After having done this horrible crime, he has to do penance. And he goes to... I, I forget the exact king. He goes to a king... The gods say, you've got to go to this king and do penance, and he gives him ten labors that he has to do, but two of them get nullified because he had help, so it ends up being twelve labors. I think it was right. uh, king, the king of Manoa. Was it was it Midas, maybe? Uh, I don't think it was Midas, but because that sounds... Or maybe it was, maybe it was Minos. Uh, it could have been. I don't, I don't it remember actually the might king. Have been. Yeah. But the king is just like absolutely the worst. He just wants to sabotage Hercules every chance he gets. Yeah, he's got to clean out like poop from these stables from giant horses. He's, he's got to get. This is where he gets his famous club. This is where he gets his lion. He kills the Nubian lion. lion. He gets his lion mane. This is where he kills the hydra. Yeah, he has to get the golden apples. Wait, this now that that he... lion mane though, that's like like a cloak of invincibility, right? It's not just a regular lion. This is this is like armor. Oh yeah, so he kills this lion, and the lion skin is so tough that like virtually no weapons can pierce it. And that was in Mycenae, and I know that because when I was on my honeymoon, I went there and I bought a, like a, a little fake boss relief of Hercules wrestling the Nemean lion. Oh, very cool. And Hercules apparently sired so many sons that a lot of uh, people in the, the area of ancient Greece called the Peloponnese, which is where the Spartans were from a lot of them claimed to be descendants of Hercules. They said that Hercules runs through their, their family tree. Yeah, the Peloponnese are like the fingers uh, underneath the isthmus of Corinth. Correct, yep. Yeah, so, okay, so we've got Hercules, who's probably the most famous demigod, and maybe the most famous god, period, but I, I guess he achieved godhood later, or, or I'm not sure if, if there's a significant distinction between demigod and god when you're that powerful. But Zeus and Hera were not alone as god-gods, and I guess the, the big two after them would, well, I guess Poseidon and, and Hades count. Uh, did Hera have any sisters? Well, Hera is uh, is one of the siblings of all of these. So we have um, Demeter would have been her sister. Um, Hestia, who is not like a major player in a lot of the myths. Well, what'd she do she's, wrong? She's an Olympian. Yeah, um, but she's not. She doesn't figure. She doesn't figure into, into a lot, um, but she is an Olympian. Yeah. Why was she omitted? What'd she do wrong? Or right? <laughs> Maybe she was the goddess of like relaxing. <laughs> she's about childbirth. So, uh, yeah, there's not a ton out there off memory of the myths that I've read where she figures prominently. But yeah, she's definitely an Olympian. She's one of the twelve, if I remember correctly. Yeah, absolutely is. Um, but then we get great and. Im- Important female figures in the next generation, of course, in Athena mm-hmm. uh, and in Artemis, um, and certainly we've we've touched a little bit on Aphrodite, who is uh, you know loosely connected and formed out of the cast-off genitals of a of a Titan. But yeah, she's almost um, like a, she's like their aunt. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cousin, yeah. Half-aunt. No, she's uh, from Cronus's, uh, well, yeah. manhood, right? And and the pre, pre-Poseidon water. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Artemis Athena, phenomenal. Um, super, super important. And Artemis has a twin brother named Apollo, who mm-hmm. is arguably the most important, at least to the ancient Greeks. At a certain point, Apollo becomes one of, if not the most dominant um, cults in there because of his ability to be prophetic and the way... So how it would work in the ancient world, if you wanted to know the, the future, you would go to a priestess called a Pythia, and a Pythia would channel the will of Apollo, and Apollo was able to see the future. The most famous of which would be at the oracle at Delphi. Mm-hmm. So you would go see the, the Pythia at Delphi, but the Pythias were all over the ancient world, and Apollo being one of, if not the most important of the ancient Greek gods. Very cool. Yeah, and then he was uh, like, what, a god of tactics and hunting? Like, a lot of these gods had strange overlapping powers. Yeah, certainly. Apollo is an interesting one because his domain is uh, is prophecy, is light. He's often associated with the sun and solar energy, but he's not necessarily a sun god. We have Helios for right. that. Uh, but he's also a god of music. He's a god of poetry and language. He's a god very much of the arts, um, a, a patron of the arts, but also of kind of philosophy and, and prophecy. So he's, yeah, he's an interesting one. Yeah, you brought up an interesting thing because a lot of people think of Apollo as the quote-unquote sun god. Right. And there's a distinction in the ancient world that it's hard for us to think of. And you would use the word, Jeff, earlier, mythos. So there are two different sort of um, big tents which ancient religion operated in. One is mythos, which are these stories they tell about the gods, the goddesses, the demigods, the heroes. And the second is cultos, or what we normally call, we now call the cult. And that is the worship of the god. And it's really hard for us because in contemporary religion, we have a Bible. We go, we read the Bible. It would be, quote unquote, the mythos. And then you would go to a priest who would read the Bible to you and explain what the Bible says, that'd be the cultos. So to those, they're one. But in the ancient world, those are two separate phenomenons, and they don't necessarily overlap. So in the mythic tradition, the sun is literally Helios, if you're talking about Greek myth, riding a golden chariot across the sun every day. The moon is literally Artemis, chasing those in the the mythic sense. How does Apollo then become the quote-unquote sun god? Because Apollo is represented as a god of prophecy, often in the cultos, so when you go to an Apollo, uh, Apollonian cult, they would have um, pictures of Apollo with solar disks coming out of his head because the sun sees everything. So in the cultos, in the cult practice, they would worship him as a sun-like deity because the sun sees all Apollo sees all, but in the mythic sense, he's not. So this is how he becomes a quote-unquote sun god, even though he's not the literal sun. Yeah. That is, yeah, that, that's a little bit confusing, but I think he did a great job of uh, explaining that. And Athena, Hopefully. yeah, uh, and Athena. I mean, it seems like she's like like the goddess of war, but there's Ares, who's a god of war. Uh, you know, and uh, maybe that's a difference between mythos and and cultos again. I'm not sure. Well, you can clarify that overlap in the fact that Athena is very much a goddess of 
strategy, like strategic war, military, and uh, and war effort. She's also, like we said before, a, a goddess who oversees some areas of domesticity. She brings the olive to Athens. She's also a god of crafts, like weaving in particular. Um, Ares, on the other hand, is a god of kind of violence, rage, and chaos as far as war is concerned. He is a god of quite vengeful, uh, uncontrolled war. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, essentially you said the gods live on Earth. The gods can be injured in, in the, I'm not sure if it was, well, it must have been the Iliad. Uh, Ares got injured. He, I think he lost his hand, right? Is that right? I don't remember that from the Iliad at all, but it has been a minute since I've played it. It's been a minute, yeah. Yeah, which, yeah. which is interesting because the god of war in Norse mythology also lost his hand in, in a very different way. He was a feeding one of Loki's other kids, Fen, Fenmir, or Fenmir, the, the big wolf. And, Fenrir, yeah. And he bit his hand off. Uh, but uh, Tyre, or whether Tyr loved him so much that the... He's like, ah, don't worry, he's a wolf, it's cool. Yeah, the loss of hands and arms and legs and other appendages is super important in myths and literature, and then in Star Wars. Yeah, maybe he thought, like, he's a god, he'll grow back, and the rest of them like, let's not tell him. <laughs> Yeah, but it's interesting because of Ares and Athena, and I thought you touched on the dichotomy really well there. You know, Ares is just, that's just pure rage. Just hack and slash, yeah. Yeah. No strategy. And Athena is just like, no, let's plan out, and it's okay if you uh, win a battle and then you accept a truce where Ares is just like, slaughter them all! Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's like more tactics and craft and and things like that, and he's just like a force of nature just bowling on forward, uh acting and then asking questions later. Yes. Uh, so we also have a god who sometimes is in the full 12, sometimes isn't, but he is the patron saint of all of us regular guys who want to get our own Aphrodite, and that's Hephaestus, uh, who I guess is, a, is the Roman equivalent is Vulcan. I, th- Vulcan. I think I'm right there. And he's sort, of, uh, he's sort of like a gimpy kid. He got hurt, but he's... Really clever. He's sort of like Iron Man. He he's injured, but can b- build all their their machines. Yes, he's the blacksmith of the gods, uh, and he's married to Aphrodite. But Aphrodite, much like Zeus, has a wandering eye, and so she is often in entanglements with other gods and like mortals, a- like Ares. Um, yeah, in particular Ares. She also has a love affair with Adonis um, and other mortals, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, that that's not necessarily a happy marriage because he's uh, Hephaestus is great and and has a probably a good heart, but he's not the best looking of the of the Olympians. If I remember correctly, stop me if I'm wrong here. Isn't doesn't Hera throw him off of Mount Olympus, and that's how he gets his limb? Yeah. Yeah. So, talk? Uh, yeah. Wasn't... Yeah, because he's he's uh, he's Hera's son. Yeah, Hera's his mother. So she so she threw her own kid off, uh, but she just torments Zeus's kids. Yeah. Or their moms. <laughs> and I think that's how he ends up marrying Aphrodite. Zeus feels so bad that Hephaestus was thrown off of the mountain and now has this permanent lip. He's just like, uh, you can marry the goddess of beauty. Oh. And Aphrodite's just like, wait, what? Poor Over Hephaestus. there flirting with, with Ares. Like, huh? I'm marrying him? <laughs> Which is nice because Hephaestus, you know, gets to be with the goddess of love, the very epitome of beauty. But as you said, she has a wandering eye and a wandering body. And so it's sort of constant, you know, pain and pleasure all in one. Yeah, well, the uh, 
the Greek gods tend to mate with each other indiscriminately, like regardless of lines of marriage or relations. So they're all related to each other and they're all sleeping with each other, except well, for the virgins. But wasn't Isis and Osiris were a brother and sister? And then I mean, exactly. And Adam and Eve sort of were, and even if they weren't, I mean, they're kids certainly were be there weren't a whole lot of options to be get and begat with other than each other so yeah pretty much so the greeks were not alone in in this i think also well it doesn't matter i think in some of the other panoplies it's it's the same it's not that unusual for brothers and sisters it's it's very game of thrones targaryen type of uh yeah interplay going targaryen on. house lannister yeah you name it um, you know, what I thought you were going to say when you said a, a god who is sometimes considered one of the Olympians and sometimes not and is a god of us regular party people, I thought you were going to say Dionysus. And that's certainly someone that we should discuss at least briefly, especially since sure. we've already talked about Apollo. That's the great dichotomy, right? Apollo versus Dionysus. And also because I am drinking alcohol. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. By all means, Dionysus. I mean, the, the patron god of, of uh, my body now, so. <laughs> Uh, Dionysus is someone that uh, we really love uh, as a as a, a figure, and also the kind of spirit that his um, character has driven into literature going forward. Um, Dionysus is a little bit of a complex figure, sometimes considered like wholly born of uh, the same uh, Greek cosmologies and mythologies and cults of the others and then from other perspectives wholly foreign and worldly perhaps subsumed from another mythology or another culture um, and perhaps much older than some of the other gods um, we like to think of Dionysus and his Roman counterpart Bacchus as the god of wine and he certainly is the god of wine but it's a lot more complex than that he's very much the god of transformation right so wine drinking of wine sends you into a transformative state. He's also a patron of theater. The earliest uh, Greek theatrical dramatic tradition was undertaken as these days-long religious festivals to Dionysus. Uh, and that, again, is the art of transformation and of connecting with this kind of higher uh, divine spirit through this transformative process of the uh, of the body and of the of, of humanity. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people thought he was Indian because right. his myth has him, after being born, he kind of gets shuttered away and he grows up in India and then he, he has a Dionysian pageant. So he has this gigantic parade with satars and minads and all these magical creatures. And he holds this uh, staff called a thyrus. And so he's holding this thyrus, which is just a staff covered in like ivy and all of these plants and he marches from india to greece and then he settles in greece and the first dionysian cults prop up but they've now recognized that um all of the 12 olympians actually date back to the mycenaean age of greece because they found their names written what are called linear b tablets so a very ancient form of writing before there was a greek language they have all of the names, including Dionysus, which suggests that he's actually an ancient Greek god like all the rest of them. So who are, the, who are the 12, and we will accept Dionysus as a first alternate? Okay, let's see if we can do this. Off the top of our head. we got Zeus, Hera, Hestia, Hades, Poseidon, uh, Demeter, um, 
Uh, Artemis, Apollo, Athena. Well, those wouldn't have been... They're Olympians. Well, yeah, okay. I'm thinking about the originals. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Artemis, yeah. Athena, Apollo, Ares, Aphrodite. Ares. Aphrodite, I think that's 11. That's 11? So Dionysus? Dionysus, yeah. There you go. There you go. And, but, and Hermes is probably the most famous of the next level, the, not in the 12, but uh, I think, anyway, the only one I can think of offhand. Oh, we love Hermes. Yeah, I guess you could sum up Hestia for Hermes, because he's yeah. involved in almost every myth, and Hestia's not. So we're going to declare that Hermes is part of the Olympians. <laughs> Ooh, so now we're, now we're up to close to, well, he's, our I guess, our first alternate. But uh, it was the messenger of the gods. He's the one with the... the Little World War One like helmet with wings on it, wings on his feet. Yes, uh, he carries a, a staff called the Caduceus. Um, it's that staff with the serpents, um, like the medical seal. So actually, <laughs> oh my God, I'm pushing like the, my glasses up on the bridge of my nose. Uh, the Caduceus, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and the rod of Asclepius are often um, interchanged and incorrectly used in in place of each other. The medical seal is actually the rod of Asclepius. It's supposed to be one one rod with one serpent uh, twining up it, but a lot of people use or confuse the uh, the Hermes' double-serpented rod for it. So one Um, serpent good, two serpents bad in Greek, but one serpent everywhere else probably bad, except when it's good. Yes, exactly. Perfectly said. You you got it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice. All right, very good. Well, good. I, I stand correct on that. So Hermes is, in fact, not the god of medicine and is not the French designer Hermes. Hermes, yeah. Um, bit of a trickster, uh, certainly an ambiguous character throughout the mythologies, but plays a really interesting role in some of my favorite myths, certainly. Um, and is a, yeah, ambiguity, I, I would say, is the name of the game with, with Hermes. Invented the lyre, gave Invented it to Apollo. Invented the lyre, yeah. The musical instrument, not the act of lying. Right. <laughs> so who are some of the other lesser gods that people probably have heard of? There's a, there's a ton, but I think we should also talk about the heroes, because that is a really important part of Greek myth that does make it a little bit different to other mythologies out there, is that there are these crops of humans that have often have divine parentage, but don't have to have divine parentage. And the heroes are a huge part of what makes Greek myth interesting, um, in my opinion, compared to some of the other ones. Is that okay? We, we jump into some of the heroes. Sure, this is Greek mythology, so you know it's not it's not limited to pure gods. It can be uh, the mixed gods and and guys that are guys and gals who are treated almost godlike. You know, and that's an interesting thing. Some people debate: should the heroes be considered part of Greek mythology because they are not themselves god? I would argue yes, because these are the stories that were told the most by the ancient Greeks, and the gods are always going to be players in them. So from them, we can learn about the gods, but we also learn about, I think, what the Greeks were saying. So we talked about, uh, um, my God, Perseus a little bit earlier before. Some things I just want to say about Perseus, because I think he is a foundational hero in the respect that in America we have Superman, Batman. But even like before we had Batman and Superman as foundational heroes, we had George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, these people that lived that have this sort of um, 
extra human status that they really define what it means to be a great American. I think Perseus is that for the ancient Greeks. Um, he was born from Zeus in a uh, marriage that was not uh, consensual, or I'm sorry, a relationship that was not consensual. And Perseus, unlike so many of the other Greek heroes, is sort of flawless. There's not a single thing that he gets wrong. You know, Jason can be uh, deceiving and is not good to his first wife. Heracles goes mad. Um, Theseus, uh, actually Theseus is pretty perfect too, but Achilles <laughs> is arrogant. Um, Odysseus can be a bit of a trickster himself. Where Perseus is just sort of this flawless hero, he is actually, when he is born, he is taken from his mother and he is put into a basket and float, floated down a river. This is a motif that exists in a lot of other places too. It happens to Moses, for example. He's taken from his mother and floated down a river. But this idea that you are separated from your parents at birth and you have to live a normal life. So Perseus is raised by a fisher person, a fisherman, I should say. And because of that, he has these sort of down-to-earth Greek values. So that even when he learns, okay, I'm not a son of Zeus and I'm a baller hero, he's so <laughs> humble and he's so like, and he's so, uh, you know what? I'm just going to do what I got to do. I, I'm going to try to make peace with my father who thought I was going to kill him, my grandfather rather, who thought I was going to kill him. He accidentally ends up killing him too. <laughs> and, he, and he ends up slaying the Medusa. And he ends up doing these great heroic feats. And I think from the Persian mold, we can understand that the Greek hero is an integral part of the mythology because one, I don't think these people really did exist. And two, I think they say so much about not only the Greeks themselves, but their gods. Well Absolutely. Said. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they definitely have great heroes, and they also have some pretty great villains. I mean, some of those monsters, you've got Caliban, you've got, say, Scylla, Charybdis, the Hydra. You have centaurs, which some are mean, but one is not mean. You got the Tyrant, yeah. yeah. You got the, you got the satyrs or the pans, uh, you have harpies. I mean... What don't you have? I mean, Cyclops, I mean, it's like all of our monsters are sort of Greek. I mean, I'm not sure if there's a dragon. Hydra is sort of maybe the closest thing, but maybe there is a dragon. I'm not sure. We also get the Kraken from the Perseus narrative, too, with Andromeda. Right. Yeah. Right. The Kraken, right. The Kraken was a, was a Gorgon, right? Yeah. Um, well, no, I don't no. think the Kraken was a Gorgon. No? Darn. No. Yeah, I think the Kraken is a holdover from the Titan Age. And it's this like gigantic monster. So the Gorgon are just the three sisters. I think there's only three. In here's the thing: it's if you want to consider the Kraken a Gorgon, this is a myth. You can consider it a Gorgon. Well, sometimes the monster that Andromeda is being sacrificed to in um, in the Perseus myth is not the Kraken. Is something Celius, something like that. It starts with a C. Um, sometimes shark-like, sometimes squid-like, sometimes just some you know, demon from the briny depths. So there's a lot of different uh, versions and interpretations of what that monster looks like and is. Well, like Cthulhu can, can change its form. Yeah, absolutely. And there's witches too. We, we have we have witches, we have, I don't know if there's warlocks or not, but... We've I, got fates, yeah. we've got furies, yeah. Everything, it's got, every, everything is there. Um, who's your favorite monster? Ooh, my favorite monster. I I might go with the Hydra. Uh, I really do think 
I, I mean, I think as far as like what's <laughs> terrifying, like uh, how about chopping off something's head and it regrowing multiple heads back? Uh, that's terrifying. But there's also so much like um, tragedy woven into the um, the fight with the Hydra that that Heracles defeats the Hydra, but that its venom is later used to poison the cloak that kills Heracles. There's just this cool full circle element of of that part of the story. So I might go with the Hydra. Uh, refresh my memory, Laurel. In the Perseus myth, who are the three women that share an eye? Oh, the Grey, right? The um, the Fates. Yeah. No, those are the Fates. He sees witches, and all three of them they share an eye. The Stygian, the Stygian yeah. sisters. Yes. Mm. So those are probably probably my favorite. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, Greek mythology is a lot of fun. So we've got our twelve. And isn't it, wasn't Hades? Take a walk on the wild side of Borneo with Tripodil on a 10-day two-for-one adventure from just $4,498. Second person travels free. Witness orangutans and sun bears at renowned animal sanctuaries and more. Includes return flights, accommodation, select meals and more. And now earn and use Qantas points on any booking. Selling fast? Book now. Call 1-300-909-667 or visit tripodil.com.au. T's and C's apply. Why pay top dollar when you can save big on your next holiday with TripaDeal? With over 100 deals to choose from, there's something for everyone. Take off on a luxury escape to the Maldives. Discover the ancient wonders of Egypt, Jordan and Turkey. Or set sail through Alaska's magical glaciers. Visit tripadeal.com.au today to discover your next holiday. Tripadeal, bucket list experiences at unbelievable prices. Sometimes considered in 12, but sometimes not. Like, didn't he take someone's place? So he is He is one of the the children born of, uh, of Cronus and Rhea. So he is among the, like, first generation of Olympians. Um... I don't know about taking someone's place. Perhaps that's... Um... I think it was Hephaestus or Dionysus. Like, one of them they cast off and they said, okay, you can come back. Um, and so there was always 12. So when one left, they, they, they always filled it with 12. Uh, and then maybe maybe that's why Dionysus is not considered. I, I'm not sure about, about that one or, or Hephaestus. But someone sort of got demoted along the way. But I think they sort of volunteered for the demotion. And Hades, so that would be a myth. I don't know. Yeah. And then, and then Hades comes and becomes an Olympian. I don't know the yeah. answer to that. Yeah, that that's. Oh God, I can't remember who told me, but it was one. It, it, there's a lot of people who I, uh, you know, I sort of encountered uh, over the journey of doing this show. The sort of overlap between magic and mythology, and that's what that's what they said. Now, whether or not that's actually from the Greek myth or that's their interpretation to preserve sort of 12 as, you know, sort of a magic number as a through line through many things, I, I'm not sure. I, numerology is something that I know very little about, and uh, I'm a little bit scared too because I, I, I think that, like dialects, there's no end to interpretations of numerology. And Yeah, and then suddenly you're obsessed with the number 23 and you just can't get it out of your head. 
Yeah, and anyone who knows me knows I don't like British science fiction for the same reason, and I'm not really crazy <laughs> about the multiverse for the same reason as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it'll just break your brain at some point. That's, that is fair. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Yeah. yeah. I can only go so many layers. I'm more avocado than onion. You know, I need, I need limits <laughs> to my layers. I can't, I can't be into the, the world of the mice and then get into the lice on the mice and, you know, the, the cellular politics in the lice that are on the mice. So Doug, Douglas Adams bit, broke it early for me. And I oh, boy. Never really, never really recovered from that. I've tried. I, a couple of China Melville stories, have, you know, brought me back almost. Um, oh, you know, I was just thinking about, about China Melville because I have... I'm sorry, I don't know their gender, but I have one of their books as an audiobook, and I started it, and I really liked it, and I ended up not finishing it, so I need to go back. And it was called Kraken. I read Kraken. Kraken is actually um, my favorite one of his books. I think it's a Okay. Um, but there was also something called, like, The, the Road to Purgatory or something like mm. that. that. That was that was interesting as well. I'll have to get back into Kraken. Yeah, I, I like that one, but um, I, I couldn't tell you a thing about it at this point, but I remember I remember not hating it as much as some... So, okay, this is not Greek at all, but uh, is like Bernard Lumpley has this like whole thing of like vampire books, but they really like uh, spy versus spy books, like basically British Secret Service and Russian Secret Service are trying to build X-Men, and this guy's power is that he can talk to the dead, but the dead that it's talking to him is a vampire. Um, oh, my God. And, and and once it got into all these different, I'm like, okay, I like vampires, but the rest of us, get rid of it. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like True Blood, where like you know it was started out cool, like there's vampires, there's one werewolf, and then all of a sudden everybody's a monster. There's a town of 800 yeah. people, and all of them are supernatural. No, no thanks. Yeah, no. Yeah, check it out. Yep. Check it out. <laughs> I'm out. I don't care about the blood and nudity. I'm 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 done. I'm, <laughs> Um, that was my journey with True Blood, too. Yeah. Excellent. See, I, I knew I liked you. Although, Maynards show up in season two, the followers of Dionysus. They so, do indeed. Yeah, yes, certainly they do. wraps right back around. Absolutely. Do you, yeah. have, a, do you have a favorite myth there? Of all time? A favorite Greek myth. A favorite Greek myth of all time? Um, no. What about you, Jeff? Do you have a favorite myth or character or god or someone who kind of floats your boat? Um... My favorite myth is probably Jason and the Argonauts, only because yeah. I saw that movie so many times as a, as a child, um, and that also is the you know the son killing the father fear myth. But you know it's it's almost like the the Grimm brothers where you you send your henchmen to kill the kid, but they're like they have second thoughts like ah I'll just leave it out here, and I'm sure the wolves will get to it. The baby can't possibly survive. The babies always survive. Yeah, the baby is always fine. If we've learned anything from Greek mythology, from the Bible, from Harry Potter, yeah, the baby always survives. Uh, now, we just recently rewatched or watched for the first time. I can't remember if I saw it as a kid or not, but we just recently watched Jason and the Argonauts, which was, oh my God, so much fun. The animation is outstanding. Yep, let me re answer my favorite myth because yeah. it kind of caught me for a loop and I oh, wasn't you're good. ready for that. I'm going to say uh, The Odyssey. Yeah, great. The Odyssey is iconic, yeah. So I prefer the Iliad to the Odyssey. More fighting. Oh, yeah. Uh, not enough monsters. There's also a lot of talking in the Iliad, and there's just a lot of, like, in between the battles, where I feel like the Odyssey feels like a more narrative story when I'm reading it. I prefer the Odyssey, too, but that's because I am, like, really into, like, magic and witches and monsters like you, um, and... 
the sort of sweeping quest narrative. Um, but that's just why it, it tickles my fancy. How old were you guys when you realized that the Greeks were the bad guys in the Troy War? Ooh. <laughs> because they're the aggressors and they're... <laughs> I mean, they're just terrible. I mean, you know, Helen obviously is not happy with, with the dude from... Uh, you know, Agamemnon's brother, what, what's his name? Uh, I, I can't remember his name. It's not... Menelaus. Right, Menelaus. Yeah. Not not Leonides, he's from the 300. Yeah. Um, and so she runs off with Paris. She seems to be perfectly happy. Troy is like this idyllic city, you know, the fields of Ilium, and, you know, everyone's happy, and, and it's, it's almost like Atlantis or something like that. And they're like, okay, Greeks, let's go get them. Nah, we don't want to. You swore an oath. Oh, fine, we'll do it. it, it it's like reluctant NATO of grumps. Fine, we'll go. We'll get our ships. We'll go over there. And, like, the, the Trojans, like, you know, bravely battle them back. Achilles cheats to kill Hector, who's, who's you know, just trying to protect his brother and is basically like Perseus. He's virtuous and perfect. And Achilles is, like, sort of like a giant jerk and brooding and walks off half the time and... Though he does, his 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 crew is awesome. What's the name? The Myrmidons. That that. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's you, you have a very Roman interpretation of the Iliad. <laughs> a very what uh, interpretation? Roman. A very Roman interpretation of the Iliad. The like, Romans would agree with you. Like yeah. Roman reigns? No, absolutely. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know what you meant. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, like, you know, I have not really taken sides in the historical. Did it happen? Did it not happen? mythological milestone of the of the Trojan War. So I mean they all leave um, their families for ten years to like try and kill oh, everyone in yeah. this poor little city. Then they trick them with this giant horse, which by the way doesn't make the Trojans look so great. No. Yay, a wooden horse. Just what we needed. <laughs> hey, we'll give this to the giant baby who never stops crying. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, but yeah, I the I mean the Greeks are so obviously the bad guys in it, which I I mean, and I and I can't help but think that that was sort of Homer's point. I strongly disagree with that interpretation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well go for it. Let's let, let, let let's let's do it. I, I'm going to win the Popeye debate, so you can you can start. Y- yes. With well, I, this being said, you can interpret it, and it's a myth. Interpret it whatever way you want. There's no right or wrong way. The to the ancient Greeks. Achilles was their hero. Achilles was the model of what it meant to be an ancient Greek soldier and an ancient Greek man. It was so prolific that when Alexander the Great um, went and crossed the Aegean Sea and he conquered the part where he thought Troy was, he stopped his entire army so that he could make a sacrifice and worship to the, um, the grave of Achilles. So to the ancient Greeks, Achilles was very much a hero and the hero, and the Greeks were the heroes. And prowess in battle is the definition of what it means to be a great ancient Greek man. You know, and so if you can go out and you can win at battle at all costs, coupled that with cunning, that's just a characteristic that the Greeks valued more so than physical prowess was mental prowess. So ancient Greek education had you would start exercising really in the early in the morning and you would exercise all through the afternoon and then you'd go into intense studies where you'd study mathematics, rhetoric, literature, writing, etc. So that they believed in this unification of the physical and the mental in terms of the like holistic Greek person and a lot of that comes from the, uh, the Iliad and from that. Now, 
the Romans, who saw themselves as the ancestors of the Trojans, um, they definitely would see the Greeks as the aggressors in it, and because of that, they felt justified in having conquered Greece and incorporating Greece into the Roman, you know, imperial aristocracy and government, etc. But to the ancient Greeks, there was no one better than Achilles. There was no better Greek man than Achilles, and the Greeks were absolutely the heroes if they were truly the bad guys they would never have been able to conquer the city because only like the, the the very fact that they're able to win is an example of greek superiority otherwise they would have lost so to them they're not the bad guys it's also considered incredibly incredibly rude to go to a man's house to break bread with that man and steal that man's property and it sucks but Helen is considered not allowed yeah. proper. And so this is a story avenging a theft, not necessarily the story of a young woman who loves a young man. Even though those things are true, but, and I don't say this to say that the Greeks were right, but if you put yourself in that mindset, Homer was not writing this thinking, man, the Greeks were jerks. Quite the opposite. He was, I, I, would, I would surmise, I don't know because I wasn't Homer, I would surmise as Homer's writing this, this is the most important story to the Greeks to define who the Greeks were, and it wasn't that they were the aggressors or the bad guys, it was that they were the heroes. Okay. Quick counterpoint, almost none of them made it home except for Odysseus, and during the time of of Odysseus, it took him like another 10 years, including where he uh, slept with a witch for two years, even though he was pining for his wife and and, uh, family the entire time. So I'm not sure that Homer made any of them really look all that good. Fair. That's fair. Absolutely fair. Okay, cool. Um, you asked me who my favorite hero was. I, I mean, it's probably Hercules, but probably for all the wrong reasons, just because I grew up reading comic books, and you know, Hercules was my favorite character, and Jason and the Argonauts, and I loved Steve Reeves. You know, he was definitely better than George Reeves, and you know, so you know, this was before Schwarzenegger, and then you know, all these larger than live action heroes and in movies you, you didn't really have that you know Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson was sort of your closest thing but like guys like Steve McQueen and uh, uh, what was his name George Kennedy and just you know sort of regular guys were sort of like your heroes and then you have Steve Reeves you know like this uh, Jack LaLanne muscle guy you know straight out of the comic books and then you know then, they, then there's Hercules in my comic books and as a kid I didn't realize he was terrible but they accurately you know portrayed him as terrible basically always wanting to drink never really caring what he was doing sometimes he's the hero sometimes he's the villain he doesn't really care as long as he gets to smash <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is that extremely accurate especially to that movie version of him um yeah Hercules is is fascinating I think and and he's such a tragic figure particularly in the myth with the 12 labors um so he's and he's been iterated so many times without that like deep depth of tragedy and loss and like coming to terms with one's own madness and what happens when one loses control of of rage and violence um but I think that dimension of him is so interesting and and it's just it's tragic it's sad it was also tragic that Kevin Sorbo show Hercules that was tragic <laughs> that was no bueno or however you say not good in, in Greek I have a, I have a I have my, my Greek Australian friend he could he could tell me how to say not good in yeah, Greek yeah yeah 
Jimmy T, do something useful, Demetrios. Tell me how to say not good in Greek. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, you know, I think this might be a fabulous time to leave us. I think we've covered the, the, the mythos from creation to the heroes and, and some of the monsters pretty well. I think this is a good 101 to 201 level. I definitely uh, am down for this Popeye thing, though I think I'm going to have to watch some some Popeye cartoons, both black and white in color, too. Just prepare. Some of them are really, really racist. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, that, that, yeah it, it, that's tough when you watch the old cartoons and then you sort of yeah. realize things that, like, you... you as a kid, just never crossed your mind that the, yeah. you know, and it's one thing when it's ducks and rabbits and mice versus people. Yeah, sailors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I am warned. I, you know, I, I will revisit Popeye and try not to pay attention to those aspects too much. Um, I'll try to look at it as a four-year-old trying to apply it to Greek mythology and see if that works. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe it'll fail. I don't know. Um, Watch the Altman film. The Altman film I don't think is racist, but I haven't seen it in a what, while. What, what so. the one with uh, Robin Williams? Yes. No, no, yeah. no. Shelley Duvall. De- definitely not. I'm absolutely not doing that. I, I'm not doing that again. No, no, no. Just so, why don't you tell me to watch Green Lantern and Battlefield Earth while you're at it? <laughs> should, tell tell me you hate you hate me without telling me you hate me. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you can tell I spend too much time on, on uh, social media if I, I know TikTok. It. Yeah, yeah. No, never TikTok. I I don't do Chinese spyware. I do American spyware. Um, <laughs> that's a, that that's that's where my that's where my patriotism you know where I draw a line. No Chinese spyware here. I'll give all my shit to American companies. I already I already know that's happening. Um, Tell the folks about your shows. You can certainly start with Midnight Myth if you like, but also your spinoffs and anything else that the folks can support you on. Yeah, you can find us, uh, The Midnight Myth, wherever you get your podcasts. So we do an episode about bi-weekly right now. It was weekly until our son was born. Um, We also have a side podcast called At the Wheel of Ka. So that's me and my friend Steve. We are rereading Stephen King books and discussing them through the lens of Stephen King's The Dark Tower. So there's that. That's in the Midnight Myth feed itself. And then Laurel. Yeah, so I recently, in March, I launched my new podcast project, which is called Sleep and Sorcery. And it is a podcast intended to put listeners to sleep uh, with original bedtime stories that are inspired by folklore and fantasy. So there are uh, there's one episode in the feed right now that is inspired by Greek mythology. We mentioned Chiron, the nice centaur, very briefly. It uh, features Chiron heavily, uh, but I also have episodes inspired by Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, uh, and other kinds of original and semi-inspired fantasy. And that you can find, again, wherever you can find podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And you can also find it on the meditation app Insight Timer. That's called Sleep and Sorcery. Does Sleep and Sorcery work at putting your child to sleep? You know, it probably would. Um, it's it's family friendly. It's certainly intended for adults because there's a guided meditation portion of it, but it does not preclude youngsters. Okay, I see you, Roland. I see you. All right, thank you, Sai. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the uh, Dark Tower ended perfectly? The well, you can go check out my conversation on it on At Wheel of Cobb because <laughs> it is about an hour and a half long. So there's a lot of thoughts there. It in short. Yes, 
I do think the Dark Tower ended perfectly. Like, I hated it at first, and then I kept thinking, I'm like, actually, that's the only way it really could have ended. And, and, and it, it explains a lot why all the monsters are really scary until you, they're easily dispatched. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, I'm thinking that he got the horn of Gilead this time, and this is a new tool for the next time he cycles. I'm not, you think I'm right on that? Yes. I have an entire theory that Roland is slowly escaping the Hintic idea of the samsara, which is the cycle of life at birth and death, but it's also the cycle of suffering. And that at each iteration, he learns a little bit of something that's getting him closer and closer to eventually breaking out of the cycle. I thought I felt exactly the same way, except without you know all the smart references to other philosophies and things like that. Yeah, but I figured he got a different piece every time, and eventually he just figured out he's supposed to uh, save Jake in the beginning and, and sacrifice yeah. the rest of his mission. There you go. And that's what actually saves the tower. Yeah. Absolutely. This is beautiful. So we, we've, we've covered a lot here, but I'm, I'm definitely going to listen to your, your show on that because uh, not a lot of people read all seven of the Dark Tower. On the other side, there's people who read like all of the ancillary materials. I, I just read the seven. I, I, I didn't read all the comics and the, and the you know, prequels and the sequels and all this and the other thing. I did unfortunately yeah, see the movie. Yeah, I did yeah. see the movie too. And yeah. uh, well, you know, I don't like to be anti any piece of art. It Aww. really... Uh, yeah, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. Okay. Well, my friend was a producer on it, and he, he uh, I talked to him, I said, you know, I think that if you did The Dark Tower as prestige TV over, you know, two or three seasons, you could do it justice. He's like, do you really think anybody would want to see that again after what we did to it? I'm like, yes, absolutely. People would want yes. to see a good version of it. I don't think any. I think all of us who enjoyed The Dark Tower saw that and said, no, that's not, that's not our Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah go back, try again. Yeah, well, I'll let him know that we have two more votes for for yes. He's actually been on this podcast. His name is Mark Hammer, episode 35, uh, a Hollywood Tale. He was also on one of the Land of the Lost uh, review shows, which, by the way, those of you who enjoy those shows, sorry, we're, we, we, well, we stopped that halfway through because it was hard to convene the entire panel. And as I said earlier, there's nothing deep there. It was just the, the hopes of my four-year-old memory. It was just some stone dudes, you know, throwing reptilians and pylons and stuff out there anyway i thank you guys so much folks check out their shows sorcery and sleep or sleep and sorcery i'm sorry if i got the order wrong i'm I'm like constantly dyslexic uh, accidentally but it sounds like a great way to go to sleep and learn something and maybe learn sorcery while you're asleep definitely check out the midnight myth sounds like it's definitely in the garden of dooms lane um though maybe a little bit more erudite maybe a little bit more focused and they what was it conversations with ka uh, Wheel of Ka. Wheel of Ka. Who's Ka? Ka, which is... It's like a, a wind, man. You know, its job is to spin. And we are all going to end up where we began. It's Ka. Wow. Okay. There you go. Excellent. So we've learned a lot. Definitely please send me a text of that, that word that uh, I can't possibly pronounce, but it means that the <laughs> twin, twin sons from different fathers and a god and uh, one mother in one gestation and, you know, the tr- trifecta fornication copulation alchemy uh, whatever it was <laughs> folks thanks so much for tuning in to Garden of Doom you will hear us next week take it off take it in take off all the thoughts of what we've been take a look hesitate take a picture you could never recreate write a song make a note
Det er et godt spørgsmål. Vi spurgte studerende på Aarhus Universitet, hvorfor de valgte at læse ingeniør. Det er spændende. Jeg har altid godt kunne lide matematik. Man kan ændre fremtiden og være med til at få os i den bæredygtige retning. Jeg synes sådan set, det er fedt at kunne koble teori og praksis sammen. Og det der med at sådan skulle løse virkelige problemer, det synes jeg er fedt. Vil du også læse ingeniør på Aarhus Universitet? Bliv klogere på ingeniør.au.dk